in light of the current circumstances with uh, much news about the coronavirus, uh, what many have labeled a a pandemic. Uh, Next week, I'm going to be preaching on the theme of of living with biblical faith in the midst of potential fears. Uh, So good to be reminded of the supremacy and the sovereignty of our Lord in in, in the midst of a world that is in so many ways um, out of sorts. So that is for next week. Uh, this morning, though, we continue in Matthew's gospel. If you would turn to chapter 19, we will look at verses 1 through 12. Matthew 19, 1 through 12. And one of the things that we have seen as we have marched through Matthew's gospel is that the, the focus and scope of Jesus' ministry, particularly his teaching ministry, has gone from the larger crowds, as we saw beginning in the Sermon on the Mount, to focusing more upon the church as he promised to build the church in chapter 16 uh, and to describe then the characteristics of his kingdom people and the characteristics that should define his special society. Well, the focus narrows even once more uh, again here in chapter 19 from the larger crowds to the church and now even more to the family, marriage, domestic life, family life. What is Jesus' teaching on the marriage relationship? What about divorce? What about the life, a calling to a life of singleness? Jesus addresses all of these here in chapter 19. And so we turn our attention to God's Word. Verse 1 of chapter 19. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, He went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they're no longer two, but one flesh." What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Well, Jesus' words here give us uh, not only great insight into his view regarding marriage, divorce, uh, singleness, uh, in a sense what one author called Jesus' domestic ethics here in a, a short or small number of verses, but they are very relevant for uh, the church today as we as Christians navigate and consider the cultural climate in which we find ourselves. Uh, today not only is divorce among so many treated very casually, 
not only is the calling to a life of singleness viewed by many people in our society as something less than marriage, but for years uh, the institution, uh, the definition of marriage has been under uh, tremendous attack. And not only the definition of marriage, but the very purpose of the marriage relationship here in Jesus' view, in Jesus' eyes, is radically different for his followers than it is for the world. Uh, But then there's something else about our Lord's words. They are very difficult words. They're very sensitive words because they touch on something that has affected so many people. It is a statistical fact. Almost every one of us here and in our congregation has been affected by the disillusion, the dissolving of the marriage relationship. Whether a person has been through a divorce themselves or they have felt the pain of a spouse deserting them or they suffered at a young age from the consequence of their own parents divorcing, or against one's will, a person is thrust into a life of singleness, or a person has felt the pain of seeing a child go through divorce, or a sibling, or a close friend, it touches many, many people. Uh, I remember as a student at Reform Seminary in the early 2000s down in Orlando, uh, one of our New Testament professors began to have real difficulty in his own marriage, and it became a public uh, matter. Um, not only that, it became uh, his grounds for pursuing uh, divorce were in real question. And here we were, seminary students in a close, uh, tight-knit community. And so there was a desire among the fa- faculty to provide for us a platform as students to ask questions, to seek counsel. And I remember one of our Old Testament professors, Richard Pratt, saying to us in a small group, he said to us, you need to see this. You need to see this. Those of you who are pursuing pastoral ministry, you need to see this. And he said, what you need to see is that there is grace and there is life after this. Referring to his colleague, referring to this Christian man going through this difficulty, painful, sin involved, yet there is grace. There is grace for the people of God who have experienced the disillusion of a marriage. And there is grace because our God has covenanted, He has bound Himself to His people in an eternal union that cannot be broken. As we look at the text, we see how the whole question of marriage and divorce and singleness surfaces. It's the Pharisees wanting to trap Jesus. As they have done before, we see in verse 3 here, they come up to Jesus to test him. And they ask a question. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? They're trying to lead him down a path, believing, as Jesus will say, of course, not under, not under any circumstance is divorce permitted, so that they can set him up for what they will ask in verse 7. So why then? Does Moses command it or permit it? But notice how Jesus first responds to their question about divorce. He doesn't give them an immediate response about divorce. Where does Jesus go? He goes back to the original design of the marriage relationship itself 
in the creation story of Genesis. Uh, The Pharisees want to know about the permission of divorce. Jesus aims to teach them about the permanency of marriage. They're asking about the disillusion of marriage. Jesus is going to teach them about the original design of marriage. And how wise, how helpful this is for every Christian. Whether marriage is going well or someone is facing deep difficulties, whether there is a person who is considering entering into the marriage relationship or is newly married or has been married for many years, it's the original design to which we ought to look. And that is where Jesus points the Pharisees and us. So he says in verse 4, Have you not read that God created them, male and female, and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. It's remarkable how much Jesus says in just a few words in a few verses. Several initial points can be made about these words. One, marriage we see is created by God. It is designed by God. He is the one who instituted the marriage relationship. Therefore, our God owns the marriage relationship. And because he has designed it and instituted it, it has tremendous worth. Two, we see it is a monogamous relationship. It is between only two people. And not just any two people. It's exclusively between one man and one woman. The two become one. So in the eyes of God, there is no marriage that exists outside the union of one man and one woman. That is what defines marriage. Three... It is a union. We see in verse 5 and 6, the two shall become one, one flesh. They are no longer two, but one. And it is to that union that I want us to draw our attention. The Genesis account to which Jesus is referring is Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And when we read those words, the two become one, one flesh, that one, that word one is used throughout the Old Testament, and it is used arguably in the most important verse in all the Old Testament. The verse, the words that would define the people of God, perhaps more than any other, which is Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the great Shema. That word Shema, hear, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, In a world filled at their time with polytheism, uh, the Israelites were called to believe in the one true and living God. He is mono, one. The Lord is one. And that word one is the word ekad in Hebrew. Uh, It's used throughout the Old Testament. And among the meanings in the semantic range, it can mean many which are one. Many which are one. Remember, our God is one, but he is triune. He is one God in three persons. We remember Jesus' words. 
I and the Father are one. He is Father, Son, Spirit, three in one. We read in Exodus chapter 26 in the building of the tabernacle that the curtains that defined and made the tabernacle dwelling were held together by 50 clasps so that they may be a single unit, same word, ekad. 50 clasps to hold it together to become one, a unit. Many forming one. The Lord is three persons in one. Uh, When the scripture says in the marriage relationship they are no longer two but one, it's the same word. The marriage relationship was created in part to reflect the very character, the very oneness of God. That is a profound reality to which tremendous worth is given to the marriage relationship. And so it is sacred, it is holy, not only because God designed it, but because it reflects His very divine nature. And so if you need motivation or a re-motivation in viewing your marriage and valuing your marriage, look here. Look here. This is a place upon which to stand. Jesus is saying, saying marriage is holy ground. This is God's territory. We need to treat it as such. Shelley and I have been uh, providing premarital counseling for a couple friends of ours from outside the state for the last few months. And of course, while we're seeking to prepare them for the marriage relationship, we also know, and they know even more, that they're preparing for a wedding day. And if you've been down that road and that process, you know there are a lot of preparations to take place for that one day. Invitations and dress and music and photography, food, rings. And there's a lot that happens on the wedding day itself. And yet I think of all the preparations, all that will happen in the ceremony, perhaps the most important element will be those words spoken, those vows taken, that commitment being made one to another. I take you to be my wedded wife. I promise in covenant to be your loving and faithful husband in plenty and want, in joy and sorrow, as long as we both shall live, or till death do us part. It is a commitment to the very thing Jesus is referring to here. As he quotes from Genesis, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Interesting, the the joining is not the result of circumstances that have come about, in this couple's life. It's not the result of common interests. It's not even the result of their love for each other. It's the result of God. It's what God has joined together. It is an act and work of God. Let not man separate. But it's not just holy ground, this marriage relationship, because it's designed by God, because it reflects the very nature of God. It is a husband and wife's most important ministry and environment to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a place to do and live out ministry. In Ephesians chapter 5, which was read earlier in the New Testament scripture reading, verse 31, the Apostle Paul 
quotes from the exact same verse that Jesus quoted from there in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But in the context of Ephesians, we see the Lord, through Paul, reveal an even deeper reality about the marriage relationship. That as a Christian, the relationship between these two people is a reflection of Christ's relationship to the church. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Wives, submit to and respect your husbands as to the Lord. There is a mutual submission, a mutual giving of oneself to another, of dying for one another. And so God gave marriage in great part to display the very gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what a gift that is to us as Christians, that we are not only recipients of the gospel, but we are called to participate in displaying this gospel in the most regular, uh, intimate relationship that God has given in marriage. And so as a Christian husband or as a Christian wife, we should be awaking each new day, asking ourselves, how can I give myself for my wife or my husband? How can I be loving? How can I be faithful to him, to her this day? And here's a wonderful truth about marriage I learned years ago. Neither in Matthew 19 or in Ephesians chapter 5 or anywhere else in Scripture does God require you to, to have a great marriage or require you to make your marriage successful. Marriage, as you know full well, is made of two people. And you can't be both people. You play one part in the marriage relationship. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Lord through Paul does not call you to create a successful marriage. What he calls you to is to be successful in your marriage. To be that faithful and loving husband. To be that faithful and loving wife. Not in response to how your spouse... uh, engages you or speaks to you or treats you, but in response to how your gracious God in Jesus Christ has engaged you and has loved you. And that's a freeing reality for the husband and for the wife. Alistair Begg, Christian pastor and author, said, settle for nothing less than the wonderful provision God has made in the gift of marriage as he has established it and as he expects it to be enjoyed. Marriage is a gift, but it is a delicate gift. It is a delicate gift. Sometimes people find themselves in deep, deep struggles within the marriage relationship. Sometimes people experience the pain of divorce. Sometimes people are thrust into a life of singleness after having been married for many years against their very will. Some have experienced divorce before coming to know the Lord Jesus. Many are the circumstances, many are the questions that can surface surrounding marriage and divorce. The Pharisees, in seeking to test Jesus, ask him in verse 7, why did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? 
Uh, the text to which they are referring is Deuteronomy 24. Interesting to note that Deuteronomy 24 is the only Old Testament text containing a law specifically about divorce. But the Pharisees have misinterpreted the law. They've misinterpreted God's word. Notice in verse 8 that Jesus corrects the Pharisees on two different fronts. One, the Pharisees said, why then did Moses command a certificate of divorce? Do you notice how Jesus corrects that in English? He does not say Moses commanded. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. So the first correction is that Moses never commanded divorce or to write a certificate of divorce, but rather permitted it under particular circumstances. Nowhere is divorce commanded, but rather under particular circumstances permitted. But then there's a second correction that we see. It's not for any reason that a person could write a certificate of divorce. What does Jesus point out? It is because of your hardness of heart. Sin or hardness of heart is the ultimate cause of divorce. He says, but it was not so from the beginning. Marriage had an original design from the beginning. But sin entered the world. It had a design. Sin entered the world. You may not be able to see, but just over my right eye, I have a scar. And that scar came about five or six years ago. It was the spring season had just opened up. I took my bike out for a first ride for the spring season, put my gear on. And I noticed in the driveway as I took my bike out that there was something clicking in the front wheel of the spokes. And so while riding, wisely of course, I put my right hand down toward the spokes thinking to myself, there's something in the spoke. I'm just going to let my hand rub against the spoke to remove it. Well, I continued on and began my, my bicycle ride just a quarter mile down the road, and the clicking noise is just getting faster. I'm going about 13, 14, 15 miles an hour now. Not real fast, but fast enough. And I put my hand down again. I thought, maybe if I just press a little harder upon the spokes, it'll remove the twig or leaf or whatever that it, it is making the noise. Well, the next thing I knew... And my face was against the cement. Blood was flowing, and I stood up, and there was a Jeep Cherokee, I recall that, someone, and they took me to uh, the ER. Now, here's the point. Uh, the point is that bicycles were not made to crash, okay? Also, spokes were not made to fit hands, Okay? But what happens? Bicycles do crash. Foolish decisions are made. Cars were not designed to crash, but wrecks happen all the time. Scars are formed. And it's because of the wrecks that God saw it fit to provide laws to govern them. That's why we have rules on the road. And in Scripture we see two particular permissions for divorce. 
in the Bible. One we see pointed out here by Jesus in verse 9. It's the exception clause, people call it. Verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Except for sexual immorality, which is a word in Greek including incest, homosexuality, fornication, and adultery. Here it's primarily referring to adultery. Adultery breaks the very union of those two people. Again, divorce is not commanded. It's not obligated. I've seen marriages counseled through such circumstances and healed and restored. And it's a beautiful thing as God's forgiving grace flows through people and one to another. But there is this permission, this exception. The second permission is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, a very important chapter on the marriage relationship. Verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 7, there we find that when a believer is married to a non-believer and the non-believer abandons them, what we call desertion, the believer is free from that marriage and is free to remarry. Desertion or abandonment by a non-believer. It's remarkable that in just a few verses, Jesus has not only addressed the marriage relationship, circumstances surrounding divorce, but he also addresses singleness in verse 11. He says, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. In other words, there is a calling for some to a life of singleness and celibacy. He says in verse 12, There are eunuchs, incapable of intimate union, since birth, he says, there are eunuchs made by men, and there are those who have, been made, who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven, for the sake of the kingdom. He's referring to a life of singleness and celibacy. And some people in the church are single. You may not want to be single. You may feel called to be single. But it is God's lot for you, His calling for you now. Uh, the late Christian minister John Stott lived his whole life, of 90 years as a single man, and he spoke to a group of singles. He said this, First, don't be in too great a hurry to get married. Be patient. Pray daily that God will guide you to your partner or show you if he wants you to remain single. Second, lead a normal social life. Develop friendships. Third, if God calls you to singleness, don't fight it. Remember the key text, and he quotes from 1 Corinthians 7.7. 7. Each person has his or her own gift of God's grace. God has a lot for all of us. One thing is for certain, whatever your lot may be, it is temporary. It is temporary. Whether you are newly married or you've been married for a long time, whether you are single, whether you've been through brokenness and pain in relationship, it is 
temporary. The best and sweetest of earthly marriages is a temporary arrangement. But there is a marriage, there is a union that lasts forever. There is a love that is perfect and without end, and it is the love of our Heavenly Father. He has bound Himself to His people. He has covenanted and entered into a relationship that will have no end, and it's a remarkable reality. The love that God has for us as His people is unwavering. It is constant. Uh, The scholar Leon Morris, he says this, that we learn many things about God's love throughout the Scriptures, but two things in particular are repeatedly emphasized, he says. One, it is constant, this love. That is, it is unwavering. It is everlasting. It cannot be broken. Despite our own faults and sins and failures, this love is constant. That's what that covenant love is about. And two, it is exercised despite the fact that the people God loves are so unworthy. He says this is a great comfort to God's people. Of course, they must be constantly vigilant in their efforts to avoid evil and to do the things that please God. But they need not fear that when they slip into sin, God will cease to love them. He will not. His love never wavers, never ceases. Let's pray together. Oh God, how we thank you for the gift of marriage and for your lot in our lives. Whether we have experienced great and deep pain in relationship and brokenness within, whether your lot for us is a life of singleness, we thank you. We look to you as our gracious and loving God who has covenanted himself to us, bound us to himself. Lord, we thank you for your constant and abiding love. We pray, Lord, that the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, would not only be in our minds and our hearts, but, Lord, that we would live out this gospel of dying to ourselves, dying for the other. Oh, Lord, particularly in this time in which we find ourselves um, in a society uh, with many fears and questions, concerns. Lord, we pray that you would work out your grace and love in and through us, that we would care for one another, encourage one another, hear one another. And Lord, in those most important relationships within our homes, one to another here, within the marriage relationship, we pray, Lord, that we would know your love in and through us. And Lord, that we would demonstrate it and Lord, in, in love toward our husband or our wife. Lord, in all these things, uh, may we bear witness of who you are as our supreme Lord. Giving thanks in our hearts. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.